Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew, chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. Matthew, chapter 18, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. May God bless the reading of his word. Thanks, David. Good morning again. It's good to uh, be able to sing together and start the new year. Stolen Christ and, uh, and being able to uh, gather around his word. And as we just sang, where else, where else would we go? For you have the words of eternal life. Well, this morning I want to pose a question. It's the question that is posed to us here in this text. It's the question that the disciples ask of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is, who, who's the greatest? We might not pose it that way. We might say, who's the best, right? Who's the best? Uh, we, we understand those questions. Those are things and maybe debates that we like to have. You know, is Michael Jordan the GOAT or is LeBron James the GOAT? Uh, and if you don't know what GOAT means, please talk to your neighbor. Uh, but we have these discussions all the time. We, we want to talk about who, who's the best at this or that. What was the greatest band? What's the best movie? Uh, who, who's the best at whatever it may be? And, and these questions are, are, are things that aren't foreign to the world. In fact, they are, are very uh, close to the world's ideals, wanting to know who is the best, who is the greatest, who is number one. And the world is often caught 
up in these type of questions because really our sinful hearts are caught up in these type of questions. Our hearts are inclined to pursue what the Scriptures call the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. We see things and our eyes glow and we're like that, that little girl in Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory. Daddy, I want that golden egg, right? And we see it and we long for it and we will do whatever it takes to get it. It is a, uh, and it's an allurement to our sinful hearts. In fact, since the curse of sin, we are all programmed to long for significance and to find joy in being great in other people's eyes. Now, nobody wants to be a loser, right? Nobody wants to be the loser. No one wants to be on the losing team. Nobody wants to be among the losing group. In fact, we all want to be on the winning side of arguments, don't we? We want to always be perceived as being in the right. In fact, a phrase that is often thrown around in our culture is, you don't want to be found on the wrong side of history on matters. There's just something in us. We want to be seen right. We want to see, be seen as great. We want to be seen as the best in people's eyes. And the world's means of gaining such recognition is to achieve to put yourself first, and not to let anyone tell you what to do. And so if you want to be somebody, you better start believing you're somebody. And then you better start acting like you are somebody if you're going to get the respect you deserve in this world. Well, here in our passage, the disciples, they too want to be somebody. That's what their concern is. Uh, they're just not content with the fact that they are, they are among the 12 of Jesus' closest friends. That, that hasn't brought satisfaction to them. They're not content with being considered sons of the king, as Jesus tells us in chapter 7, verse 26. They want to know, Jesus, who among us is the greatest? Who among us is the best? Who among us is your favorite? That's the question that they're posing. Who's going to have the greatest honor, Jesus? Who's going to have the greatest role? Who's going to have the best position? Who's going to have the most responsibility? Who's going to have the power in your kingdom to carry out your will? That's what they're wondering. And perhaps some jealousy has, has sown into their hearts as we've noticed some things that have happened in the, in the previous chapters. In chapter 17, we remember that Jesus took with Him Peter, James, and John up on the mountain of transfiguration where he left the rest. And perhaps maybe there was some grumbling going on. Well, why did they get to go with, be with Jesus? Hey, what happened? Hey, sorry, guys. We, Jesus told us we can't tell you. <laughs> you know, who knows what happened? But there begins to be some jealousy, envy that begins to be sown into the hearts. Perhaps, as in chapter 16, they're looking at Peter and they're saying, Jesus, he's our leader. He, he constantly says the wrong things. <laughs> Why don't you make me the leader? I, I don't, you never have to tell me that I'm Satan. You know, you can, why don't you make me the leader? And they begin to see that, that as Jesus is working and giving different roles and responsibilities to each of them, perhaps jealousy is sinking in. In fact, some of the other gospels allude to that. There's quarreling among them over which is the greatest. 
They're completely absorbed with themselves. That's what we're seeing. They're completely absorbed with themselves and how they can jockey for prominence. How can they make themselves stand out against the other? How can they make sure that Jesus sees them? And what Jesus says to them is that if you don't turn and stop this way of thinking, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven, let alone be great in it. That's what he says to them. You keep going down that road, you won't even enter the kingdom. And though you and I, we have different personalities. Some of us have more ambition than others. But still, I think we can all imagine at some level identifying with the disciples. We want to be seen. We want to have people's gaze. We want to feel important. And for, for all of us, that, 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 that longing, that sense of joy, that sense of identity, it comes in different ways, in, in different commendations or different accomplishments. But, but we should be able to identify here with the disciples we want to matter. And perhaps you wonder, like the disciples, well, why haven't I been given certain opportunities? Or maybe you, you look at, at certain groups in the church, in certain circles, you say, well, why, why am I not in that circle of friends? Why am I not in that close-knit body that I, I so long to be a part of? Maybe, maybe you sit here this morning and you feel overlooked. You feel like, you're being wasted. Your gifts aren't being used. That, that you've, you've served much longer than so-and-so and they've already been given more opportunity and more recognition than you. Well, Jesus is going to tell us something striking. He's going to tell us something striking about the economy of scale in the kingdom. This is the first time he really deals with this, but there's going to be other phrases that he uses to accomplish the same point. Namely, that the least are the greatest in the kingdom. The last are going to be first. And guess who are the greatest? Those who are servants of all. The scale in the kingdom is not the same as we perceive it in the world. In other words, the great ones in the kingdom, Jesus is going to tell us, are not committed to a life of self-concern. Where am I in the picture? That's not what the great ones in the kingdom are concerned with, but their life is filled with a concern for others. That's who's great in the kingdom. And such a posture is going to require, we're going to see in our text this morning, that we adopt the lowly posture of a child, that we take the threat of sin seriously, and that we share the heart of God for His people. That's what it means to be great in the kingdom of God and in Jesus' eyes. And so in answering the disciples' question, Jesus begins by telling us that the greatest in the kingdom adopt the lowly position of a child. Jesus is the master teacher, isn't he? And as the disciples are quarreling and, they, and this question comes up, Jesus points to one of the children. He says, come, come, bring the little child to me. Maybe a little girl, maybe a little boy. Imagine someone in maybe that, that, that three to six year old range and just sits them and smiles at them and has his hands upon their shoulder, brings the child in their midst. 
And everyone's wondering, what are you doing, Jesus? Unless you turn and you become like this child, this precious little child, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what he says to them. Which, no, by, by, you know, obviously probably was causing their heads to scratch. What, what are you talking about, Jesus? A child? What, how do I become a child? See, Jesus sees something dark behind their question. He sees something dark, and that darkness lies in each one of our hearts as well. And this thing that is so dark, he, he knows that if you go down this path, you'll find yourself outside of the kingdom. Well, what is it that these disciples, and by extension we, must turn away from and renounce it? And what does it mean to become like this child? This is what Jesus is getting at. Why does he bring a child into the mix? Well, because children are least in society. You might say, in some sense, they were already acting like children. We usually use that as a, as a sense of derogatory term. You need to grow up, right? Stop acting like a child. But Jesus isn't using it like this, although they were acting like children, bickering over a toy, you might say. But that's not the, the point that Jesus is trying to make. It's more of a positive one. And why children? Because children were the least in society. What do we mean by that? It's not that they weren't important, but they, they carried no authority. They carried no weight. They were, they were, they're just like a group of their own, and, and, and they really, in some sense, have no sense of their lack of authority. They just know they are under authority. They must obey adults. There's a sense in which they don't even argue about that. They're not even worried about that. They're children. They share no social rank. And in fact, we even recognize this at times. I was thinking when we have our, our business meetings, typically. What do we do after when we have the meals? We usually dismiss the children, right? Because now it's time to do the important stuff, right? Now just imagine if we had dismissed any other group in the church. You'd be greatly offended, right? You'd be greatly offended. Why am I not in the room? I'm important. The children are like, yippee, let's get out of here. They're not concerned about being important in that way. They're not concerned about that. And that's what Jesus is getting after. Really to understand that you are children. I mean, there's something about being a parent that we get to realize as we even discipline, as we love, we cherish, we look at our children, that you should be honestly learning how God sees you. There's something in how He has woven fabric in His goodness and making us His image bearers that when we look at our child and we say, how many times do I have to tell you? Hey, remember, and we're constantly reminding them, hey, you can't do that. Hey, look both ways. Hey, you must lock the door. Hey, you can't just leave the fridge open. Hey, you can't complain. You can't fight. You need to share. And it gets exhausting. But you know what? You need to realize you too are just like that. And every time, there are times that I catch myself and I'm saying, Father, you are so patient with me. You're so patient with me. 
I need to be reminded. I keep doing the same things over and over again. I haven't learned my lesson. We're all children. Jesus' point isn't about adopting a child's simplicity, his naivete, his innocence. But look in verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What he's talking about here, it's not so much the virtue of humility, although that's certainly here. It's talking about a position, a status, a role. Come like a child. Jesus says something very similar in almost the same situation because these children, the disciples, do the same thing again. They want to know who's the greatest, but this time, James and John send their mommy to ask him, right? You know the story in chapter 20? His mom, their mom, the, the mo- mother of, uh, of the sons of Zebedee, goes to Jesus and says, Hey, Jesus, can my boys sit on your right and your left? And the other disciples hear it, and they're like, are you kidding me? You got your mom to go ask if you could have that role? I mean, they deserve, man cards revoked, everything is gone. They deserve the hazing that they probably got. But Jesus doesn't partake in that. Look at in verse 25 of chapter 20. Just flip over there. Same issue that we're dealing with here. They haven't listened, so they do it again. But Jesus called them, verse 25, and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. What's, what's he doing? He goes, you see how the pagans, the unbelievers rule? It's all about the power, the authority, the titles. They don't care about the people. The people are there to serve them. They aren't there to serve the people. He says, their great ones exercise authority over them. But he goes on, he says, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be, here it is, great among you, must be, not this time a child, this time the analogy is a servant. Another status, another position that nobody wants. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave? I mean, imagine what he's doing there. He's saying, you want to be great, then be his slave. You want to be great, become his servant. But you guys are acting like the world. And then he presents himself, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The greatest in the kingdom, brothers and sisters, aren't entitled. They don't insist on their own honor, authority, recognition. No, they adopt the lowly position of a servant, a slave. In our passage, back in 18, a child. And how do you know that you've reached that point, that you have adopted that position? Well, it's not just a mindset. It actually results in action. And we, and we see that in that you also associate with other little ones, other insignificant people, other children of the kingdom. Look in verse 5. The greatest become like a child, but verse 5, whoever receives one, that, that, 
That word means welcome, embraces. Whoever receives one such child in my name, guess what? Receives me. What's Jesus getting at? Like Jesus, we're not trying to jockey for position, try to get ahead on everybody, trying to find the inside track among one another, distinguish ourselves so that we're more prominent among the family. No, rather, we adopt the lowly position of a child by associating with the lowly children of God, of whom the world does not receive. We don't consider one another according to worldly standards. Some of us befriend others because we think they will gain us something. Some of us want to, to get close to certain people oh, so that I can be noticed. I want, I want, I want, I want things, and so we use people. Jesus says, it'll be obvious that you have adopted this lowly status because you'll be along the lowly. <laughs> you'll be among them. One of the things that brings great joy to my heart is when I, I see you going to the lowly, the insignificant, maybe the loner, and befriending. I'm going to brag on Valerie as I can today. I was, uh, was talking to, to Pastor Gary, and, uh, and there was some sort of birthday celebration or something. Gary knew nobody here really at the church. He said the one person who came and sat next to him was someone 30 years le uh, younger than him, and it was Valerie. Sat with him and, Dave, uh, and Debbie. And just, it wasn't just, hey, how are you? Move on. Like, sat down. We had a conversation. She befriended us. You've had that happen to you, I hope, in some way. That's what Jesus is talking about. But sometimes, no, we go and we just hang out with our friends. What you can do for me, what makes it easy on me. And we, we disregard everybody else. And Jesus says, actually, the great ones aren't concerned with themselves. They're concerned with the lowly ones. That family who's sitting by themselves and doesn't know anybody, you say, they're, I, want them to, I want to know them. I want to associate with them. I want to be with them. Because here's the deal. That's what Jesus did for us. We're the nobodies. The ones which the world does not receive. And he sought us. He didn't come to lord over us. He came to serve us, to redeem us. And as we accept our low status, Jesus moves on and he says we also stand on guard against the dangers of the world. And we do so by taking the threat of sin seriously. Now notice that Jesus just moves straight on from receiving to what receiving doesn't look like. He goes to the negative. And he, he begins to warn us of really the dangers of rejecting children. He moves from receiving the children of the kingdom into protecting the children of the kingdom. And what I want you to think about is that you are your brother and your sister's keeper. You have a responsibility to guard and protect one another. That's part of receiving and identifying with them. To identify with the lowly and to receive them is to be our brother's keeper. And Jesus gives the most severe warning here. 
Actually, this is probably the most severe warning that, that is found in Scripture. That if you do not receive, but you become a stumbling block, a, an avenue of temptation to cause one of these lowly ones, one of these little ones, that's you and me, by the way, to sin. Be better than you were ever alive. That's how severe the judgment will be. The idea here, when he says in, in verse Six, but whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin is the idea of stumble, to fall. Uh, it's used regular, uh, uh, different ways. Jesus says, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. It's the, the same concept. It's used even in the parable of the sowers where the one seed that is sown, but for a while it grows up, it rejoices, but when troubles of the world come, it stumbles, it falls away. It turns away from Christ. Same idea as here. Woe to the one who would treat one of these little ones in such a way that would cause them to fall away. That's what he's getting after. A sin, not just, oh, you know, I caused them to gossip, although that's serious. But a sin of rejection. Sin of rejection. And he says here, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck. Now, millstones, there were two types of millstones in those days. There was this kind that a servant might use to grind up wheat. But this one is the kind that is used for a donkey because it's so heavy that a, a human being couldn't move it and push it. I mean, this takes a whole new meaning to concrete shoes, right? This is a heavy boulder, if you will. And obviously this is hyperbole in some sense. It's to describe the, the, the great danger of causing one another to fall away or to introduce temptation and sin into their life. It would be better that you wrap a boulder around your neck and be dropped into the deepest sea than you do that. Some severe words that Jesus has for us. And so what is he talking about? What, 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 what things do we need to be avoiding? Well, obviously, this is a warning against those who would sow seeds of division and, and bring destruction in the church. It also extends to those who would promote false teaching or have an unholy influence on others. Those who would champion sin. You go get them. Yes, let's go. Let's rebel. The leader of that group, woe to them, Jesus says. But it also can take the form of believers causing great damage through discouraging others, incessant discouragement, unfair criticism, even for pastors, a lack of pastoral care, a heavy-handedness that would crush a soul or even a failure to forgive, whereby a soul, a person is so crushed and defeated that they have said, I'm done. If this is Christ, I don't want it. And they walk away. I've been around in the church long enough to know that sometimes it, it can seem like the church is even more cruel than the world. 
Some of the most hurtful things happen inside the church, don't they? Mercilessness. Discouragement. And usually it comes because we don't want to be viewed as in the wrong, right? It all comes back to that dark desire. I want to be great. I want to be honored. We'll crush people to make sure we get it. And in the church, there can be crushing of souls through gossiping, backbiting, incessant criticizing, despising, neglecting, crushing, envying, misrepresenting, and resenting people. And when these things occur, the church literally consumes one another. Destroys a church. And Jesus says, this is the influence of the world. This, is, this, this come, verse 7, woe to the world for temptations to sin. It's, he's saying woe to the world because this is from the evil one. This is how the world acts. And it shouldn't be how the church acts. Woe to the world. But he goes on, he says, but woe to the one who acts like the world. Woe to the one who's in my sheepfold and is the avenues of the world's destruction in my church. That's what he's getting at. Gates of hell will not prevail because woe is you to whom temptation comes. So what is Jesus saying here? We need to be on guard. We need to be on guard against sin and leading others into such sin. And how do we do that? Well, it necessarily means that you must be on guard against your own sin. And you must be aware that your own sin, it doesn't just affect you, it will begin to spread like a little leaven. Leaven's a whole lump. Sin always takes you further than you ever want to go. And you never have it under control. You never do. And so Jesus uses another radical picture here, this time of amputating one's hand or foot or plucking out one's eye to illustrate the violent battle that you must wage against the sin that afflicts your own soul. John Owen quips, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You can't put it in neutral. If you're in neutral, you're already rolling back. You must always have tension. You must always have the pedal down. You must always be in drive, trying to flee that sin that breathes right down on your neck. It's even closer than that. It's in your heart. And in light of this passage, we might want to add to Owen's world words, be killing sin lest your sin begin to kill others. Greatest in the kingdom, they see their lowly state. I mean, once you realize the depths of your sin, you realize the grace of God in your life. And, and, and all these other accolades and all this, it's just like, I'm a child of God. It's good enough. But it's the moment that you forget. You forget the depths of your own sin that you begin to feel entitled. And you begin to say, you owe me. How dare you? 
and you begin to become embittered and you begin to hold grudges and you begin to resent and you begin to lash out. It's when we forget our own sin and the depth of it. And the greatest of the kingdom realize this and they take their sin seriously because they know Christ died to redeem them from the damaging effect of sin in their life. And He not only died to redeem you, but He died so that you would not lead others into sin. And as a Christian, I have found the most critical, the most unforgiving people, the most merciless people are those who don't think their sins are great. But you find the most encouraging saints, the most merciful saints, the most forgiving saints, they know themselves to be great sinners. As Jesus says, they love much because they've been forgiven much. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us be a people. Let us be a church. Let us be Christians who recognize that our sins are so great. They are so great that we can't even possibly perceive their depth and confess that. And then let us, by prayer and by the power of the Holy Spirit, fight. Wage the good fight of the faith. And fight against the temptation that afflicts us taking every measure possible to cut off sin in our life. If that means I don't have a television, if that means I don't hang around certain people, whatever it is that I find that I am in temptation and I am weak and this fans into flame the dark re recesses of my heart, whatever it is, I would rather not have it than to bring destruction upon my soul or the soul of another. We'd even do this to the thought level. That battle begins the moment you, you become aware of that sin in your heart. That anger that begins to, to fan into flame, that jealousy that begins to come, that lust of the eye that begins to twinkle in your eyeball. All those things, those thoughts, you've got to start killing it then. You can't fantasize about it. You can't do these things because once desire takes hold, it gives birth to sin. You've got to kill it at the root. Because Jesus says it would be better for you to limp into heaven than for you to strut into hell. Cherishing sin, my friends, it will kill your soul. And it will kill the souls of those you influence. Just will. Don't let your hatred of sin cause you to, to despise other believers who are trapped in sin. To despise those who are held captive or entangled in their sin. Rather, thirdly, Jesus says the great ones in the kingdom share the heart of God for His people. Look in verse 10. Jesus moves from this radical addressing the threat of sin in the life of your own heart, but even its influence in others. But then He turns to a gracious tone. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Yes, take sin seriously. Kill it at all costs. But don't kill each other. Don't kill each other. 
despising little ones here. You see that theme that Jesus keeps going? He moved from child to little ones. Who are little ones? Those who believe in me. We're all little ones. And just like it would be devastating to to crush a child here, Jesus is saying you should have that same sense and care for one another. Despising little ones is the opposite of what Jesus says to do in verse 5. Receive them. What is despising? Rejecting. Crushing. Sending away. And we can be so quick, I think, to write people off. To wash our hands of them, withhold forgiveness from them. Because they wander away. They get entangled in sin. They sin against you. They have a moment of weakness and you say, yep, I knew it. You're one of those. And Jesus helps us see that our Heavenly Father doesn't view us that way. And He knows all our sins. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And Jesus says, your your Father actually doesn't treat you this way when you sin. He's not as harsh to you as you are to others. In fact, He seeks after you whenever you sin in order to restore you. Jesus goes on in verse 10. He says, For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What is Jesus talking about here? Their angels. What Jesus is, is saying, I don't think we need to take it too far and develop a theology of guardian angels or something here, but what he's talking about is, is that those little ones whom the world does not represent, guess what? You have angelic representation before the throne of God. You have representation before the God of the universe. You're important to Him. That's the point. There's more theology that I could draw out of that, but the point is you're important. And God sees everything that's going on. You have advocates, if you will, in some sense. And Jesus says, that God's children are very precious to Him. They're right bef- he sees everything that's right before His face. And angels are ministering spirits working on your behalf. And Jesus wants us to understand that God is the true seeker and to remind us that He actually sought you when you were a stranger. When you weren't even His child, you were the child of the evil one. And He still sought you. And he still rescued you. How much more would you do than these little ones who wanders from the fold? And so knowing God's grace in Christ, His patience and His kindness, His kindness which led us to repentance, He calls us to share that same heart that He shared with us towards one another. And so Jesus asks us to consider a question. He says, verse 12, what do you think? And he gives this analogy of a shepherd who has a large flock. He says, there's a hundred sheep in this flock. He goes, what do you, what do you think? If, if one of his sheep goes astray, will he not leave the 99 and go find that one who went astray? This is echoing that passage in Ezekiel 34 that God's our shepherd. 
We may not resonate as much with the shepherd ideology. We, we don't, I don't know any shepherds in this church. But many of us have children. Some of us have a lot of children. I have five. Some of you act as if I have a hundred. Well, let me tell you, if I'm sitting down at the dinner table and four of the five come, I'm not going to say, well, we got most of them here. Will I not get up from that table and search the house? And if they're on that house, will I not search the streets, go to the neighbors, begin going and taking every measure till they are found? Of course I will. Of course you would. Why? Because they're precious to you. It's not your will that they should perish. But guess what? It's not our Father's will that any of you should perish. Jesus says, will there not be great rejoicing over that one who's found over the, the 99 who left? Absolutely. I've lost a child in the mall before. It was terrible. And there was great joy once we found her. Much more than over the other ones. <laughs> At that moment. You know, Jesus is saying there's more joy in heaven even when one of his sheep just wanders, falls into deep sin. Oh, the redemption story. There's great joy. There is. As Jesus says, we'll say later in chapter 18, you will gain your brother. You'll gain your sister back. This is the will of God. James actually ends his letter with the same exhortation. I want you to just see this a couple places. Go to letter James. It's right after Hebrews. Get to the back of your Bible. James, I found, just as a side note to give you time to, to turn, James is just filled. He's the brother of our Lord. He didn't believe while our Lord was alive, but now he believes, but it's interesting, he is a good disciple of his older brother. And there, I found time and time again as I'm reading the gospel of Jesus, I find James says this. James says this, and he, he gives application to it. And, and you'll see, I hope, just the clear analogy here. Uh, or likeness to what Jesus says. Chapter 5, verse 19. James says this, My brothers, my brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Paul says the same thing in Galatians chapter 6. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, any transgression, they're caught. You who are spiritual, you might say, you great ones. Those of you who are mature, who understand the grace of God, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. Paul and James are applying this text to the church. And what I want you to hear is that you and I are our brother's keeper. When there's conflict in, among saints, when there's sin that one of us is entangled, it is your business. Because they're your brother or sister. 
You don't turn a blind eye. You share the heart of God and you go seek them. Blessed are the peacemakers, not the peacekeepers. Some of us think it's real spiritual to say, hey, I'm going to stay out of that. No, Jesus is the great one that can really get in the mess of it and work the peace of God among the brother and sister. I'll tell you, I had a conversation with another pastor facing some serious sin in their church. There was adultery amongst two members leading to divorce. And the lead pastor became aware that one of the other pastors was trying to address it and seek after him and said, why, why are you getting in the mess of that? We don't want to get entangled in that stuff. Woe to you who don't share the heart of your father. You do get in the mess. You do it gently, do it kindly, like you would seeking a child who might be missing from the dinner table. Because it's not the will of God that any of us would perish. And you are the means by which God does the seeking. You are. And so the truly great ones in the kingdom are filled, you can see here, not with a concern of themselves. What am I going to get? No, they are filled with concern for others. Not despising them, but receiving them. I don't know what is going to be in store for 2021. I guess we better buckle up, right? Here's what I do know. Our Heavenly Father wants you and I to adopt the lowly position of a child. He wants us to take the threat of sin seriously. And He wants us to share His heart for one another. That's what He wants us to do. That's His will for your life in 2021. Okay? When we come back to Matthew 18 and verses 15 and following, what we're going to learn is, is a little more practicality. How do we do it? How do we express that heart of God? How do we seek after one another? And what he's going to teach us is that we're going to have to learn how to graciously address sin in each other's lives and learn how to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. And in doing so, brothers and sisters, we'll be great in Jesus' eyes and in His kingdom. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank You for Your mercy. Mercy to us, and we are we're just little children. We're just little ones who believe in you. And Lord, I pray that by your grace, you would work in us your, your mercy, your kindness. Remind us of, of your goodness in sending Christ who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Lord, as we have learned Christ, may we go and do likewise. And you would preserve us, Lord. You would preserve our faith. You, you would guard us from sin. You'd keep us from the temptations of the world. And Lord, you would help us. And we actually, we, Lord, you would use us to be instruments of your grace to bring in your children who have not yet come home. And we tell and declare of the good Father who has loved them and has good gifts for his children. And we'll give them a kingdom that cannot be shaken and that will last forever and ever. Lord, impress these truths upon our heart 
May we not forget them today. Bring them to our attention. Show us where we are lacking. Give us grace and motivate us out of gratitude. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we respond in song and give.